And I, I tell you, what, I am so looking forward to being in heaven where there's no distractions of the flesh or anything like that, and we're worshiping God. And, and, and obviously, as you study the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, there's more than just you know, singing that goes on in heaven, okay? We're not standing on little white clouds or anything, but I want you to know I'm looking forward to that renewed heaven and earth, being able to worship God and enjoy his presence and all of the blessings that he has for us, okay? Because in this world, as followers of Jesus, we only have an opportunity to, to taste it, but then, man, we devour it. It's in part now, it's in full then, and I am so looking forward to that day. Amen? Awesome. I am not a southern boy. My mama was a southern girl from Macon, Georgia. I am from the north. I'm a Yankee. I guess, technically. Wilmington, Delaware, 30 minutes south of Philly. And it, it, it's not like Wisconsin or Michigan where it's super cold. But just so you know, gray skies ruled the day during the winter. The trees were barren. There were no flowers. The ground was brown. And the only thing you could really do, I guess, was go to school and play football. That's it. So <laughs> from my perspective as a kid, right? But for me, by the time end of February, I am like, I'm so tired of the bleak winter, of the gray skies. I look forward to spring. And to be honest with you, it's been about a long time since I've lived there. Uh, and, but I believe it was somewhere in March, beginning of April, my, the bulbs that my mom, not the light bulb, you understand what I mean, right? The bulbs that she would plant, they would start sprouting up, daffodils. Would, we had a dogwood tree in our front yard that would just bloom huge, beautiful blossoms. And I looked forward to spring. It was just so dry, so dull, so dreary. I actually heard this. Um, I was encouraged many years ago to consider uh, going to Duluth. Is it Duluth, Minnesota? Minnesota, because there was a church up there um, in Harvest Network International that I'm associated with that was looking for a pastor, and I talked with my wife, and we canned it almost right away. You know, really, I mean, and spiritually, we just didn't feel the Lord's calling us there. But in the natural, they say that it's very difficult living there because it's like overcast so long, so many months. Um, I, I, I don't know how people make it sometimes with just overcast skies so frequently. Um, but you know what? I looked forward to the spring, and for me especially, spring was when the, uh, the dandelions would pop up. You know those beautiful, beautiful round yellow flowers that just grew everywhere in our yard? Um, it was like straight from a country living magazine, except that was our whole front yard and backyard. And my mom, she would love to be able to just say, okay, boys, it's springtime and the dandelions are out. And she would give us these little, we called, they were little lunch bags. That's where we put our lunches in, right? Brown paper bags. And she said, fill it up and we'll give you a dime. Now, a dime back then was a lot of money. And we would love, we'd look, we'd, we just pulled the heads off of those things, you know? And then the, one time she gave us this tool. I hated it. You'd have to dig down into the ground and pick it up by the roots of all things, and then you had to put it in the bag. It, it just took so much longer. Uh, you, you, of course, you try to put as much dirt in there just to fill up the bag, right? But it, it, was, it was tough. But spring for me was dandelions. The 
the winter time was like death. The springtime was like life. Scripture in Isaiah 35 gives us a very similar picture, except instead of, instead of winter and spring, it speaks of a wilderness. Isaiah 35, go ahead and turn there with me. I remember when I left Delaware and the East Coast, and my wife and I, we had just gotten married, and we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona was a desert experience for us in more ways than one. I remember when we were driving into the valley, okay, and I had, I, I was, uh, I don't want to say I was a, a landscaper, I, I cut lawns to make a living, and that's how I worked my way through college, okay? I also was a youth pastor and making a whopping five bucks an hour, Woohoo! Right, and here we. Anyway, I'm married. We're driving down into the valley of Phoenix, Arizona, and they had something called desert landscaping. Does anybody know what desert landscaping is? Well, like three hands, four hands, five. Okay, maybe maybe a few. Their their front yard is filled with rock, little rocks. Some of them, most of them, were white rock. You didn't cut your lawn. You had a bottle of Roundup. Um, they also, if, if you had a little bit more money, you would, you would use the red lava rock, and that looked pretty cool. But that was desert landscaping. And for my wife and I, living in Phoenix, Arizona, no, nothing bad about Phoenix, Arizona, just us personally, we were glad to have moved out of the desert. And we moved to... Um, to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I got my master's degree in what they call a master's of divinity. And it, it was, there was spring again, and there was life. And, and it wasn't so overcast as it was just five hours north in Wilmington, Delaware. And, and we enjoyed our six years that we spent in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Isaiah paints a picture for us of death, and he associates it with the wilderness, with the desert of Phoenix, Arizona, so to speak. And now it wasn't always like that. Some of the more wealthy people actually had green grass in their front yards. It was just expensive to have all of that water irrigation. <laughs> but I, I, before I read this chapter, and we're going to read the whole chapter, I want us to see something. Last week, I talked about this idea of regeneration, a very strong focus in this teaching in Scripture, Ephesians 2 and the like, where we are dead in our sins. Not only did sin kill us and separate us from God in whom alone is life, and therefore if we're separated, what are we experiencing, church? Life or death? Death. Separated from God in sin, we're experiencing. So sin killed us. But Isaiah, excuse me, Ephesians 2 said, not only did sin kill us, by separating us from all that is life in God, but that sin became our grave. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. From Romans 6, it actually says that we were enslaved to that sin and it ruled over us. It had mastery. It was our master. And so, Scripture says that it reigned over us. When we looked at Ephesians 2, we discovered though sin killed us, we are made alive with Christ. Though sin became our grave, Ephesians 2 says we were raised up with Christ. And though Scripture says that sin reigned over us, in Romans 5 it says that we reign in life. And that we are able 
to reign in Christ. Ephesians 2 actually says that we have been not only raised up, but we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Seated with Christ where he is reigning. And in this life, church, we have the privilege and opportunity of reigning, though reigning in part because of this inheritance we have in Christ in heaven. And we're going to talk about this a little bit at the end of Isaiah 35. We have this privilege of all of that inheritance being ours to its fullest degree. So Isaiah is painting this picture, right? Now, I'm just going to break it up very quickly here. The first 35 chapters. Chapters 1 through 35, and we're reading chapter 35. Isaiah tells the people that Assyria has taken the northern kingdom captive because of their sin. But he is promising that he's going to bring them back. The exiles from Assyria would be brought back. And so (laughs) chapter 35 focuses on this idea of the exiles coming back. But listen, not only in the natural, the physical exiles coming back, which by the way, that happened. I don't know if you're aware of church history where the Assyrians ruled and reigned and then the Babylonians conquered them and their kingdom ruled and reigned. And that's when the southern kingdom was taken captive, exiled to Babylon. And in between 536 and 539 BC, that is when the captives, the exiles from Assyria and Babylon came back to Israel. So we have that picture in the natural, but it becomes so clear that Isaiah, and not just here in this chapter, but from chapters 40 to 66, there is a spiritual application. And we see that in the New Testament as far as exiles coming back spiritually to Zion, which is representative of the kingdom of God. Just give me just one moment. I'm going to hit that one more time. So that's the picture of chapters 1 through 35, and we're going to focus right now on 35. 36 to 39, it's only a few chapters, very unusual for a prophetic book, but those four chapters, 6, 7, 8, 9, 36, 7, 8, 9, they're historical. If you were to go to 2 Kings, you would find almost word for word what's written here. And Isaiah chooses these Four chapters. Well, obviously, when he's writing in the Hebrew, they didn't have chapters then, but this section he is purposely writing about Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming against them and how God rescued them. 180,000 Assyrians lay dead outside uh, Jerusalem's front door. 180,000. They wake up the next day and God came and he rescued them. And we get this picture of God coming to their rescue. But then Hezekiah goes through this thing. And he's told that he has, he, he's going to be dying from this disease he has. And he, he just turns to the God and he appeals to God's kindness and his mercy. And God speaks to Isaiah, comes back to King Hezekiah, and we're we're looking at like 700 B.C. at this point. And he comes back and he says, God's heard your prayer. And he's going to give you 15 more years of life. But Hezekiah's heart begins to be a little proud. And some ambassadors from Babylon come and he shows them his great wealth. and And God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah again. And Isaiah says, the Lord is going to tell you that that nation that just came here, And in your pride, you showed them their wealth. 
they're going to take it all with them. But he's chosen not to do it in your lifetime. And we get this picture, not just of the northern kingdom being taken captive and coming back. Now it's the southern kingdom. And chapters 40 to 66 is this beautiful picture of God rescuing his remnant. That in, in Romans 9, that remnant are believers in Christ. And so I'm sharing this with you because even though, for example, the Exodus, all right, the Exodus happened physically, but we see a spiritual fulfillment. It's, it's used as an illustration, as a picture of God's redemption of his people who are lost in sin and enslaved to sin. That's the picture of Israel in Egypt. But God called them out just like he rescued them from Egypt. God now calls us in the new covenant out of sin and he rescues us and he brings us into this new kingdom of his by Jesus Christ, death on the cross and resurrection. Now, not only do we have that picture, but now Isaiah is giving us another picture and it's a picture of the exiles coming back. And though that's physical and that happened spiritually, this theme goes throughout Isaiah and it's a beautiful picture just like the Exodus that God is going to call his people out of darkness and now into his amazing kingdom in which there's life. So now I'm going to read the chapter. Chapter 35, I'm reading from the NIV. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Which, by the way, if you were to look, chapter 40, verse 5, it talks about the glory of God there. I realize I'm not going to have time to unwrap that today, but church, so go, right, just write that down. Maybe in your Bibles, Isaiah 40, verse 5, it speaks about this glory. And when Luke quotes it in Luke 3, he uses the word salvation. This is the salvation of God. So it's kind of setting us up now for verse 3. Look at, listen to this. The splendor, excuse me, the strength, well, I'll, I'll read this right. This is English, right? Wow. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Like he's speaking to the exiles. In other words, guys, get ready. Why? Let's read this. He will come with vengeance. We're going to come back to that. What? He's going to come with vengeance? With divine retribution. He will come to save you. Verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds, and papyrus will grow. Now listen to this, verse 8. And a highway will be there. See, they're talking about the kingdom of Babylon and, and the exiles from northern and southern kingdoms scattered throughout the kingdom of Babylon. There's going to be a highway that will stretch from there to Zion. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. 
It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. So do you see that picture, church? There's Now, he's using a metaphor here. There is no physical highway. But there is a highway, spiritually, metaphorically, from there, bringing the captives back. Spiritually, that would be bringing them out of sin, out of darkness, into God's kingdom. But only the redeemed will be able to. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Kind of like the, the cavalry riding up on the enemy and overtaking this like joy will gladness is going to overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Just look at this. The desert. In the desert, there's very little water. There's very little life. For Isaiah's purposes, it spells death. It spells destruction. It spells just this weight of judgment upon them because they're literally way out there across the desert, all right, in Babylon. And spiritually, they are like, look down there at verse 7, burning sand, thirsty ground. And he says, but something is going to happen. I'm going to cause that desert to bloom. I'm going to cause the desert, not just to bloom, but I'm going to cause, like the dogwood in my front yard, blooming. It was just, every time I would look at that, it really was a, a, a beautiful picture with thousands of flowers on that huge dogwood tree. Generally, though, I just used the dogwood tree to climb, but it was beautiful. My mom especially loved it. That's what's going to happen in this desert. This desert is going to bloom. The, the, the water, it says, is go, are going to gush forth. Burning sand is going to be transformed into a pool of water. Church, that's more, it's not just that the pool of water is going to lay on top of this. The burning sand will become a pool of water. And can I just tell you that even though I grew up in a church, and I was very religious by the world's standards, I was still dead. I was still living in this desert. And there was no life. I was disconnected from the God of life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Apart from me, he says, there's no life. And so, for me, I was. this is a picture of Mike Curtis before he turned 14. Now, that's a young age, and I'm so grateful. I was born and raised in a Christian home, but I just didn't get it. And when I was 14, and my brother, three and a half years older than me, shared the gospel with me again, I remember in my heart just feeling this resistance, and yet there was also something inside of me. I knew I needed to listen to this. And if for no other reason to respect my brother, because he and I were, at that time, we were good friends. I say at that time, because brothers, we get in fights like all the time. You kind of, yeah, anyway, I love my brother. And 
he, yeah, I was just listening to him, and I remember this conflict and this wrestling match, this war going on inside of me, and that resistance, it was as if it just began to get pressed down more and more and more. God was doing something in my heart, and it was like 30 minutes to an hour. I mean, I usually napped during the preacher's sermons. And I couldn't do that with my brother. I had to stay awake, and so I had to listen to him. And God was speaking to my heart. And it was like an aha moment as my eyes were opened, as I began to realize, wow, this, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Why, why didn't I get this before? And I was like that desert. I was like that burning sand. Though on the outside, church, I looked pretty good. On the inside, I was full, as Jesus said, I was full of dead men's bones. I was full of death because I was separated from everything that's truly life that's found only in God. And so it says here that the exiles will return home to Israel, meaning that the spiritually dead will become alive. And so we have these two metaphors of the exodus. And actually Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, refers to this. The, the, the exodus and then the return of the exiles. So Isaiah gives us two pictures. Though this one focuses just on the second one of the exile. Church, that's where you were. If you're a follower of Jesus today, this is a picture of your heart. And what it was like. It was death. It was like... Goodness, living in Wilmington, Delaware, don't get me wrong, Wilmington, Delaware is a, an okay place to live. I grew up there, right? Uh, I love Central Florida. They say that it is sunny here more, uh, more days than any other place in the world. I, I think I believe that. that. That's pretty cool. 200 some odd days. Uh, anyway, I don't know the exact figure. Yeah, so nothing like up north where it was probably that cloudy during the year. But God... Did something in your life, though it was like winter time for you. God brought spring. God brought blossoms. God brought water gushing forth in your life. And, G and John tells us in two different places, John 4 and 7, in which you're, there's going to be wells of living water. Meredith referred to that. Wells of living water, springs of water of life welling up within you to eternal life. You have life in you because of these waters. God is going to trans, or God did transform you as you made that decision to follow Christ. Now, I want to unwrap this just a little bit. I want us to look at something now. It says, it says here, over there in verse four, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. And here's my question. As we take this metaphor of the exile out of Isaiah and out of the physical, natural realm, and we start understanding it as his intention prophetically about the coming Messiah 700 years later and the new kingdom that he would bring, the new life found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, why would God come with vengeance? See, I can understand that in the context of the, the, the Israelites because this nation of Assyria and then Babylon had conquered them. 
and it actually uprooted them from their homeland and, dis- and dispersed them amongst all the cities of Assyria and the, and the kingdom of Babylon. And so God is saying, I'm going to come with vengeance and I'm going to destroy the enemy. And through the nation of Persia, God actually did that. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, said to the Israelites and other nations as well, you can go back to your homeland. Okay? And, and that's actually prophesied. And Cyrus's name is actually used in these chapters from 40 to 66 in the book of Isaiah. His name is used. This is 100 year, 175 years before Cyrus became, conquered the Babylonians, just so you know. A powerful prophetic word. Now, what then, what enemy, what is, how is God in the, in the new covenant, how did God come with vengeance to rescue you? What did he do? Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.26 that before Mike Curtis stepped into his kingdom, I was ensnared by the devil. Can I confess to you? I didn't feel that way, but the Bible says that I was. That's the truth. I was caught in the devil's trap. Now, as a Christian, and I've been a Christian now for over 40 years, I would have to look back and say, yeah, I'm comparing my life now to the where I was then. And I could have done this a few years after, you know, say by the age of 17, 18, 19, 20, I'd be able to say these same things. But I would look back before my life, uh, when I turned 14, be- while I was in, the, in exile, so to speak, dead in my sins, I would have to say that that sin controlled me. That the devil used that like a trap and ensnared me. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that we are caught, we are ensnared by the devil's trap. It also says that in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that we are blinded by the enemy so that we cannot see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it blinds us. It blinds us. And in Colossians 1.13, it says that we are in the dominion of darkness, but that Jesus came and he brought us out of this dominion of darkness, God did, and he brought us now into the kingdom of light in whom, in Christ, is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I was ensnared, I was blinded, and I was held captive. In Satan's dominion, and the Greek word for dominion there is literally exousia, which is authority. This is Satan's authority. And many times it is translated, and and fairly so, kingdom. I was in Satan's kingdom. I was in a kingdom of darkness. It was wintertime. And if you've not read Narnia... There's a lot of symbolism that he uses in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with regard to the winter. Everything is dead. That was Mike Curtis. That was me. See, God then, he pulled me out of the dominion of darkness. He opened my eyes. I was, he, he freed me from the snare of the enemy. Now, I'm not saying there was nothing that I did. We're going to get to that in a moment. But this is what God did. Mike Curtis could not get free from the devil. Mike Curtis could not be suddenly come alive. Mike Curtis could not uh, open his eyes and, yeah, finally I get it. 
God had to work in me to do that. Now, again, it's not that I played no part in that. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But this is where I was. And see, this is where you were. Now, for some of us, you're like me when I was 14. And my brother, he's not going into depth like this, but I'm hearing him share the gospel with me. And that same resistance that I had, maybe that's how you're feeling right now. I am not an enemy of God. I could have put that up there too. I am not ensnared by the devil's trap. I'm not blinded. I can see just fine. I get that. That's how I felt. But when God breathed new life into me, see, that all changed. That all changed. Can you imagine living your entire life? Is there ever snow not on the ground in northern Alaska? Or in northern Siberia. Um, can you, if, if that's the case, I, I don't know that. But if that's the case, can you imagine living there like all of your life? And you never get to see the blooms of spring? See, that would be like natural to you. I mean, this is what life is, right? This is, God created the world. Okay, I get that. And, and everywhere is snow. Everywhere is overcast skies. Every, see, that's your life experience. And then suddenly, you get to come to Central Florida, and you realize, wow, there's no snow on the ground. I don't have to bundle up with 15 layers of coats. Wow, this is amazing. I love this. What is this? And you're told, oh, that's a flower. (laughs) What? Well, what's this green stuff on the ground, right? (laughs) And it's exciting. And the skies, they're not gray, they're blue. Like, wow. And there's some days in Florida in which there's not a cloud in the entire sky. I love it. Just as long as it's not 95 and humid, I love living in central Florida. The, living in northern Siberia, this is where we're at. And, and you, you, you don't know that life can be like that, like central Florida. But then one day, Right? Then one day, God comes with vengeance and he destroys all of the work of the devil in your life and he frees you. Keeping with the metaphor, you get a plane ticket from northern Siberia and you get to come to sunny central Florida. Woo! All right. The, the, the scorched ground suddenly starts gushing water in your life. In the very beginning, throughout this, and even at the end, this idea, this concept of joy and gladness, like overtaking you, like the cavalry overtaking the enemy, right? That's what God does and surprises you. Wow. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, he talks about joy unspeakable. Joy beyond description. Now, I get it that I experienced that joy when I was 14. I just wish that there was never a day in which I just did not experience that overwhelming joy. But there have been days. Now, I'm, the message is not going there, only because that, that there's a lot to that and, and what robs our joy. But the truth is, because of this inheritance that you have, your sins are not forgiven. You have this joy. Thank you, Lord, for coming against the enemy and destroying him with your vengeance. Then he says, not only will he come with vengeance, but he will come to save you. 
He will come to save you. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. This idea of redemption, this idea of God rescuing us, this idea of this idea of really what's happening, God is imparting new life to you. God, when I was 14, God birthed me. Does that sound a little strange to you? But God birthed me. In John 3, verse 6, it says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. The, t- the typical Jew would think, well, I'm a child of God. I have this inheritance. I mean, literally, they had an inheritance in the land. And so they would naturally think, when Jesus is coming, he's talking about being a child of God. John's talking about being a child of God here that you'll see. And, well, of course I'm a child of God. Why? Because I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I was born in the lineage of Jews. I, I, I am a child of God. And we could get into circumcision, the Sabbath, and how those were signs and such, but he would say, I, of course, what do you mean I'm a child? And, and remember John the Baptist, he said to them, you think you're children of God. God can raise up children from these rocks. Ouch. You, you, guys, you're missing it. He's speaking to the religious leaders of the day. You're missing it. Because that is children physically, because flesh gives birth to flesh. But this is spiritual. You're caught in spiritual darkness. The devil is spiritual and has ensnared you. Your eyes are blinded spiritually. When my eyes were blinded spiritually, I could see just fine. I loved playing baseball. You had to have a good eye to do that. I could do just fine. But spiritually, I was blind. You can read through Isaiah 35 about the blind and the mute and the lame and how God is going to change all of that, and that's what he did for me. Now here, I'm going to read to you. This is spirit giving birth to spirit. Because if I'm spiritually dead, then I need spiritual life. I need spiritual birthing from God to be a child of God. I'm going to read this passage to you, starting with verse 11, John 1, verse 11. It says this, he came, excuse me, he came to that which was his own, the Jewish nation, but his own did not receive him. John, what do you mean by receive him? He tells us, yet to all, excuse me, verse 12, yet to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, what follows are three things that are flesh giving birth to flesh. And I realize that in our day, there there actually since the Reformation, there are some who interpret one or two of these as being equal to faith. And, And I can assure you that he is not talking about faith anywhere in these three things. He is simply referring to The Jewish mindset that rejected Jesus did not receive him and thought to themselves, well, I'm a Jew, so of course I'm a child of God. And John is saying, no, you are not. These three things, he lists them. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision, literally that is desire of the body. The desire of the body. 
I would understand that to be sexual desire because this is all about flesh giving birth to flesh. And then thirdly, he says, um, or not born of a husband's will, but born of God. So how did Mike Curtis get birthed from God? First, he says that to those who received him, that is, and the Greek makes this clear, that is those who believe in him. To receive Jesus is the very same thing as to believe in Jesus' name. So Mike Curtis at age 14, I believed in Jesus. I received him. I was given something. And if you look in your text, it says I was actually given a right. And this is the Greek word exousia. It's literally translated authority. But a right is perfectly valid interpretation. Some would even go so far as to say it's a privilege that's given to us. But as long as we can see authority in that sense of privilege, okay. But this right is given to us. Now, I want you to imagine that right, because you believe in Jesus, that right was given to you. I put a little box here like it's a piece of paper. And God, in essence, gives this right to those who believe in Jesus. And he gave Mike Curtis this piece of paper, and it says that right or that privilege that is now being given to someone who is believing me. What's on that page? What's on that page is to become a child of God. If when you believed in Jesus, God gave you that authority, that right, that privilege to become his child. I'm not splitting hairs here, but theologically, it, it doesn't say to be a child because that's simply adoption. It doesn't say that. It says to become, and that's the way the Greek reads, to become a child. Here's the question any Jew that's reading this is going to ask, how do I become a child of God? I'm birthed in it, right? And John, remember three Birth, flesh gives birth to flesh. Three, nah, you're not birthed into it. You have to be birthed spiritually. You have to be birthed by God. That's how you become a child of God. So, to become, not to be, but to become a child of God, that means God births you, and then you are his child. So what is written on that piece of paper, that right that God gives you? That on that is, God now gives you the privilege of being birthed by him. For what purpose? To be his child. That's how you become a child of God. That is the right or privilege that he gives to all who believe in him. So do you see that? Because why? John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. That's what those three things in verse 13 are about. But spirit gives birth to spirit. And if you're spiritually dead, God has to birth you in order to be his child. I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? You birth, well, guys technically don't birth. But anyway, this metaphor here, this concept of birthing is from the father. He births me, and now I'm his child. That's how I become a child of God. So what's written on that paper this right to be born of God, 
so that you are his child. That was given to you. God birthed you. Just like in the springtime, my, my, my mom would love to plant pansies and, and some annuals that would just naturally come with some perennials that I think I'm getting annuals and perennials right there. And we, we, they would all be around the dogwood tree and as if the dogwood tree didn't have enough flowers, right? And then all in our front, they would, she would plant flowers and flower blossoming. And it was beautiful. And the grass would start greening. I wasn't real excited about that because I was the one who had to cut it. But the truth is, I loved the spring. It was coming to life. That which was dead was now coming to life. I'm going to put something else up here on the board. And I'm going to be very quick about it. And in all honesty... A lot more explanation needs to be given it, but I want you to see Mike Curtis needed someone like you to shine his light. And remember that shining of the light, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that happens by things that we say and things that we do. And I saw in my brother a change in his life. I was curious. I was. I'm thinking, my brother Dan, who's three and a half years older than me, he's, he's, he's been in the Christian family, you know, longer than me. He's gone to church longer than me. What's happening now in his life? And he keeps telling me that he's finally believing in Jesus. And I'm thinking, Dan, you've been, you believed in Jesus since you went to Sunday school. And I was, but I, there was a difference. I, I can distinctly remember, this blew me out of the water. My dad was praying over the meal. And my brother Dan starts crying. I get a bit embarrassed. What's going on? Awkward. And I had to ask him, Dan, you, you were crying over grace. Oh, church, mm. crying over grace, yes. Not grace I'm using in like praying over the meal, but God's grace, yes. What a thing to weep of, what a thing to be struck by and, and realize, man, this is what God is, this is my inheritance. I was dead and now I'm alive. This is amazing. But my brother, it's not because my dad was preaching the gospel, but he had said something in the prayer that really struck my brother and his tears were tears of joy. And then, months later, now he's reading the Bible like every day. My goodness, something's happened to this brother of mine, and I need to find out. He might need some of my help, right? And so, some months go by, and then he sits down, and that's the day he hands me this little tract. It's got some scripture passages inside. What do I need to do to go to heaven? And the resistance starts setting in, and I've shared the story with you. But God began to do something. His light was shining. He was beginning to preach, not just preach, but he was letting the light, the, you know, his changed life shine before me. And, and I'm mentioning this church because this is what you are, all of us are called to do, shining our light by what we do and by what we say. And so that's what my brother was doing, and God was using it, and 
then I begin to get cut to the heart. That's actually a quote from Acts 2.37. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And when people, and he in essence says, I am preaching to you Jesus. He's the Messiah. He did not stay in the grave and his body decay. Prophetically, Isaiah 45, he was raised from the dead, or is it 16 rather? And this is Jesus, the Messiah, raised from the dead. That's who I'm preaching to. That's the guy you crucified. Ouch. Yes. And they are cut to the heart by the truth of what he is preaching, and they are cut to the heart by the Spirit of God convicting them of sin. And that's where I was. The Spirit of God began to cut me to the heart. I began to wrestle with it. And in wrestling with it, and in just simply saying, I need to listen to my brother. It's not I was not completely passive in this. There were, my heart was interacting, uh, aggressive against it, and yet seeking to comply with it. And God began to speak to my heart. And it says that the Father must draw you. That's what Jesus said. He says this. He says that the Father must draw you to me. That's why you're so antagonistic, because the Father's not drawing you. Their hearts were proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. And they were not humble. It says here in the very same chapter, the Father must enable you. These are clearly things that God does. God, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says that God shined his light in that heart that was blinded to the gospel. It also says that God opened Lydia's heart in Acts 16, 14. Those are things that God did. God opened her heart. And I'm not saying that you are passive. I want to read something to you here. You don't have to turn there, but in, in John, excuse me, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives this parable. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? Now listen to this. A man scatters seed on the ground. So it's a little bit like the parable of the four soils. Okay? In this one it says, this is what the kingdom of God is, is like. And by the way, he just gave that parable of the four soils. He's following it up with this. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, he sees sprouts. Excuse me. The seed sprouts and grows, though he, the farmer, does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. So what he's saying, I've got a little seed here. I have an orange tree in my backyard. And this is from one of those oranges. This seed, uh, I caught it before it actually did this, but the seed, because it was still in an orange. Uh, but that orange will typically decay into the ground and the seed will become dormant. Though we use the term, and Jesus used this term, the seed falls to the ground and dies. So I want you to imagine the seed, it's dead. But when I plant the seed in the soil deep enough and such, 
something happens. It germinates. It's like it comes to life. And this is what Jesus is saying. When the seed goes into the soil, you can't see it. And that's like the word of God being planted in my heart. You can't see it. I can't see it. But I know that. But the farmer, though he doesn't see it, he does not understand how this thing germinates. How does that happen? What's involved here? And I, I, I realize that in, in our day, many would say, well, God has to awaken the sinner first, and then he can believe. I believe that John tells us otherwise. But what we see here is an interplay between the soil, which is your heart, and the seed, coupled with the spirit, understand, working. He doesn't know how it happens, but this, between the soil and the seed, there is new life that comes. My heart was cut. The, the people in the day of Pentecost, they asked the question, so what do we do now? He then continues to, pre Peter begins to continue to begin to preach the gospel, and then he tells them, you've got to be saved. That's it. And they repent, they're water baptized, they are saved. When you are planting seeds in people's hearts with your actions and with your words, you don't understand what's going on. Sometimes that seed gets planted and there are years in which you see nothing coming from the soil. And it's so easy for us to think, well, I, I, I guess that nothing's going to happen and it was like the seed, now referring to a different parable, in which the birds came and stole the seed from the ground. And maybe that's what's happened. From my brother Rob, he was just like me, growing up in a Christian home. Except it took him 15 extra years. Maybe even longer. I'm trying to remember the, exactly when. But I remember praying for him for 15 years. I didn't see anything. He was a bouncer in a bar president of the pagans in Philadelphia had a death warrant out on his life because he had offended him and he was going through a divorce. God had taken my brother and shoved him up against the wall and then through my brother-in-law speaks to him, Rob, hello, what are you doing? Wake up! And there's an interplay between that word of God that's been planted in his heart and now being stirred up by what my brother-in-law Chuck is saying. And, and by the way, Chuck was a godly man, so he not only spoke, but he lived it out. He was that light. And something's happening in this wrestling in my brother's heart. God is doing something. God is beginning to draw him. I don't believe this is regeneration here, but it's the Father's drawing I can't draw myself. God is enabling. God is shining his light and God is opening my brother Rob's heart and he's wrestling and he is thinking through this and he is humbling himself before God and there comes a time in which he says, I am, and he reached out for God. And that, that's actually a, a phrase used in Acts chapter 17 that they would seek God, perhaps reach out to him and find him. And on that day, my brother Rob found God. Another 
way to say it is God found him and changed his life. One who was so dead, so dead, is now alive. And I remember when he called me up and he told me, Mike, this is what happened to me. And I'm thinking, I'm on the phone. Yeah, okay. All right, well, Rob, I'm, that's neat. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, here we go again. You know, he's making a decision. And, and oh, you have little faith. That was me. God had truly changed my brother Rob. Just pulled him out of darkness. Pulled him away from the snare of the enemy and rescued him. And it says there in the passage that God will come with vengeance and he will rescue you. Church, I just want my friends, if you are in that place in which you are in exile, in which you are separated from the life of God, and you have yet to truly trust in Jesus and repent, surrender to him, you are still dead in your sins, and God must wake you up and breathe new life in you when you believe. And so I'm going to encourage you today, he is not far from any of you. Seek him. Reach out to him. Perhaps today you will find him, it says. If you do this, you're born again. You're forgiven. You're not condemned. You're justified. God has not just said you're no longer not guilty. He actually imparts to you his very righteousness. The, the righteousness. Of, you're sanctified because you've been washed free and made new and you've been adopted and now received this amazing inheritance in Christ. This is ours. And as a result, he says there, but only the redeemed will walk there and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. They will, our, your heads will be crowned. Gladness and joy will overtake you and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the promise to you who have chosen to believe. He welcomes you into his kingdom here it says Zion. And eventually one day, the heavenly Jerusalem. When you die or should Jesus, should Jesus tarry or when he comes back and takes you to be with him, you will enter into his kingdom, eternal kingdom with everlasting joy. You're not going to have days in which you start believing the lies of the enemy and you start wrestling in turmoil. There's, and, 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 and the enemy starts just pressing in about you and robbing you of your joy. No more days in which because we live in a broken world, you experience the brokenness of other people. You begin to experience the brokenness of tragedy. We cannot escape that church. As believers, we live in this broken world and we experience it, but one day, all gone. Everlasting joy will be ours. So can I just encourage you? If you are in that desert, you don't have to stay there. If you're in the wilderness looking around, if you're in that time of winter in which there is death, God offers you hope. It will transform your life. He will regenerate you. He will become his own child. That is his promise. He will pull you out of darkness. And he will bring you into his kingdom. And he will give you what's part of that inheritance, joy. Joy, rejoicing, singing. When you worship to some of these songs, you get it at last. When I was 14, I got it. This is what Jesus did for me? Thank you, God. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. Church, can you stand with me? God extends a call to you this morning. To those who are in darkness. Come out. Into his kingdom of light. Come out of death into life. This is his promise to you. And maybe some of you, you strayed from that. And whenever you stray from the author of life, you begin to experience that death. And I'm not saying that you're dead, but you know what? If you're straying today, come back to the one who gives life. He is the source of everything that is good. Come back to him. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it is eternal. I thank you, Father, that your truth changes us. Father, thank you that Jesus willingly went to the cross, died, was buried, but rose again. And that life of resurrection is now mine. Thank you, Lord. Father, I just pray, would you be speaking to hearts repentance. Speak to hearts. Believe. Trust in Him. Surrender the allegiance of your life to Him. Father, I just pray by Your Spirit, speak deeply to our hearts. Where we need encouragement today of what we have in Christ, give us that encouragement today, God, that we go from here changed, build up, encouraged in the faith because of Your Word. So, Father, thank You Thank you for this amazing inheritance. Thank you for the new life in Christ. Thank you that I'm a child of God. You're amazing, Lord. Thank you for all of these things. Now take these words and seal them in our hearts, Lord. Would you do that, Father? And day by day throughout this week, bring them to mind and encourage us. Would you do that, Spirit of God? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.